Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Carrying on from last week's episode's New Year's greetings, if you celebrate or otherwise mark it, I hope you had a very happy Easter, a kosher and joyous Passover, and or a blessed Ostara. It's that time of the year where there are many and varied religious and cultural celebrations one after another. It was holy recently too, an ancient and popular Hindu festival that celebrates both the arrival of spring and the defeat of evil, Hiranyaka Shippu, by good, Vishnu. Most outsiders, especially in the West, only know it as that festival where everybody throws coloured powder around. Still, at least they've heard of it, which is a step up, I guess. Related to that, I was writing this episode on International Asexuality Day, which seemed to be trending regionally on Twitter, which shows either that there's a lot of us, or that it doesn't take a lot to trend on Twitter. I've spoken and blogged at length about asexuality before. Indeed, I have two almost entire pods on it, episodes 7 and 32, so I'll briefly pass over at this time by reminding people of whatever orientation and or gender identity, but even also whatever hobby and interest you have, place that fascinates you, or specific cause you believe passionately in. The important thing is getting people to hear about it, getting it known, and until then, people won't listen, they won't care, and importantly, have no way of relating. You may feel sometimes you're shouting into the void, but if only one person listens, only one person understands, only one person goes, yes, that's me, or yes, that makes sense, I believe in that, then you have achieved something and made that one small step towards a wider acceptance. Hmm. I don't think I've got any personal updates to give you, really. It's been an otherwise fairly indistinct two weeks. I'm doing more running again now that the weather's Well, I'd say improved, but as I look out the window, I see it's currently trying, albeit failing, to snow. But it was about 20 degrees Celsius on Sunday. We're very definitely in that weird bit of the year where the weather doesn't really know what to do. I've probably said it before, but the best thing about running is not the running itself. It's the having run, that feeling that you've achieved something and your body is going, wowzers, I needed that, but now let's rest. And there's a great disincentive to do it when it's cold and wet outside, especially barefoot. At the end of this current week, so possibly around the time you're listening to this episode, I'll be having my voice recorded professionally, so hopefully nothing horrific will happen between now and then to prevent it. I'm hoping they give me guidance on what to do next, actually, on how to market it. The friend I was going to meet while I was there can no longer meet me because she's realised she's busy until just after lunch. We could still have met up, but we'd only have had an hour together and it just didn't feel worth it. Guess it gives me an excuse to go back down to London later in the year, though. I have, however, booked to go and see another friend in mid-May, once the pubs have been open long enough for people to have gone over the initial thrill. She lives up Durham Way, so we're meeting in York as it's halfway. It shows what sort of year this is that I've booked a day of work simply to go drinking with a friend in a city I've been to many times before. I'm normally all about the new, the exciting, the different. Meh. I'm also pondering my summer trips. I had thought about hiking a footpath in Scotland, or visiting Orkney, but I'm just a bit fearful that everybody else will be doing it, as they can't go abroad. I've no real desire to be on a remote footpath or small island to be surrounded by everybody else looking for their own piece of solitude, but I'll have to see how that pans out. Anyway, my second ever podcast episode was on hometown travel, and I talked a bit about my local area. Since then, I've kind of moved house, so I have a new hometown. While I'm not recreating an episode on the concept of hometown travel itself, I did think it would be a great idea to do one specifically on the area I live, because unlike Kirkby and Ashfield and its surroundings, people have actually heard of Sheffield, and it's a pretty big and notable city. Or at least, I thought it was notable. When I was chatting with my American friend Laura, who you'll have heard on previous episodes of this pod, she admitted to have not realised just how big Sheffield was, or even really where it was. 
While I'm going to try and encompass the whole of the South Yorkshire area in this pod, obviously Sheffield itself will take centre stage, being the largest settlement and the one that acts as the gravitational centre of the region. It wasn't always thus, though, as I'll come on to in a minute. Firstly, though, some general information about the region. South Yorkshire itself doesn't really exist. Not anymore. Rather, it's a region of what used to be the West Riding of Yorkshire that was split off in 1974 and itself, to all intents and purposes, abolished in 1986 to be replaced by the four authorities of Sheffield, Rotherham, Doncaster and Barnsley. Now, I know many people listening to this are travel bloggers and they're more used to reading and hearing about distant, beautiful, cultural or famous places like Bali, Paris or New Orleans. So it's probably unlikely you'll have come across Rotherham in any of your brand collaborations or blog surfing. But that's what I do here. Travel talk tales from literally beyond the brochure. The area covered by the old South Yorkshire region, by the way, was about 1,500 square kilometres, or 600 square miles. This makes it marginally larger than the Masai Mara Game Reserve in Kenya, which, given how much I heard about that growing up on programmes like Survival, surprised me in how small it is. The population of the South Yorkshire region is about 1.4 million, of which 584,000 live in Sheffield. This makes Sheffield the third largest borough and city in England, after Birmingham and Leeds, and the fourth largest in the UK. Glasgow appears to have marginally bigger population. I mean, this is, of course, a bit fake, given the way some borders of boroughs are defined. The edge of Manchester, for instance, literally runs across the edge of the city centre. But regardless, we're dealing with a sizeable place here, and as a result, South Yorkshire is only the tenth most populous in England, behind not only the likes of Greater Manchester and West Yorkshire, but also those exciting must-see counties of Essex and Hampshire. Apart from the main towns of the four boroughs, the region is largely made up of a series of villages and small towns, many following the contours of the land and built to take advantage of the natural resources, mainly coal. In between are hills. Lots of hills. As the higher land of the Peak District to the west drops slowly to the flat plains of Lincolnshire and the Humber Estuary to the east. This effectively means it looks like from above a rather like a lot of densely populated spots surrounded by open areas of green, as if someone's thrown a load of houses like dice and they've landed on the ground and scattered randomly. Indeed, two of the boroughs, Sheffield and Barnsley, themselves cover parts of the Peak District itself. It's a very weird feeling to stand in the middle of a country lane without any mobile signal and realise you're technically in the UK's fourth largest city. In addition, the suburbs of Doran Totley in the southwest of Sheffield are the location of one of the most affluent local government wards outside of London. It's really a very varied place. Later, I'll talk about how it feels to live here, especially as someone who moved into the area rather than being brought up here, and I'll also include a few contributions from friends who have a connection with the area. But first, let's look at the history of the region. This bit is longer than I anticipated. People have been living in the vague area since the end of the last ice age. I mentioned in my hometown travel podcast about Cresswell Crags, a series of caves in the rock on the Nottinghamshire Derbyshire border, where the most northerly prehistoric cave paintings have been found. While not in South Yorkshire, it only lies about 10 kilometres from the Sheffield border, so it's reasonable to assume the people who lived there did hunt and wander through the area. The first true reference I can find to people living specifically in what is now South Yorkshire, though, is a couple of Iron Age forts, one of which is very close to where I live, at a place called Winkobank in the north of Sheffield. Obviously, there's not a lot there now. It's a green and muddy hill. But it commands a reasonable view out over the Middle Don Valley area and would have been a good spot to base yourself. Items from a similar time have also been found in the centre of Sheffield at what later became Sheffield Castle. There seems to be a theory that a small circle of foundation-type stones at Deepcar, between Sheffield and Barnsley, may be the remains of a Mesolithic-era house, but there's very little other evidence to corroborate this. It was really the Romans who first made a mark on the area, and they started early. Within a few years of their initial invasion in 43 AD, they'd built a fort, initially believed by later archaeologists to have been a temple, hence the suburb name of Templeborough, which is just to the south of what is now Rotherham. The site of this fort has been covered by later industry, which we'll come back to later, but part of the granary of the fort was moved nearer to the centre of the town into Clifton Park, which means you get to see genuine Roman ruins in a completely non-genuine setting, which is always pretty odd. The Romans concentrated, though, mostly on a fort and settlement at Dunham, 
just a bit further east and at an easy crossing point on the river Don, a Celtic name relating to the goddess Danu. This was built as an important staging post for the route between the major Roman cities of Lincoln and York, the main track of which crossed the Humber by means of a ferry, which was not always possible in bad weather, so an alternative inland bypass was constructed. The settlement at Dunham grew and eventually ended up surviving beyond the Roman era and was renamed Doncaster. As an aside, not much seems to remain of this era of Doncaster's history, aside from a timeline in the pavements along its streets that document all the things that have happened in the area that have long been forgotten about and are no longer visible. These days it's more famous for its racecourse, its football club, on whom I once won £100 in one of my very rare visits to a bookmaker, and for being the home of the first person I ever had a small crush on, a pen pal called Rachel, who I haven't spoken to since 1994. It is home to the region's airport, though, Doncaster-Sheffield-Robin Hood Airport, its name, which will come on to later, probably more interesting than its location, and whose dual-language signage suggests it looks more towards Warsaw than London or Rome for business. After the Romans left, the South Yorkshire area became somewhat frontier country. It was on the southern edge of a Britonic kingdom called Elmet. Shades of the name still exist further north in places like Sherburn in Elmet. But when the Saxons moved in and created their kingdoms in the original Game of Thrones setting, the border between the kingdoms of Mercia to the south and Northumbria to the north was generally considered to be the rivers Don and Sheaf. Indeed, the very name Sheaf may mean to divide, in the sense that the river divided the two kingdoms. This is in roughly the same way that the River Mersey, a name that means boundary, marked the western extremity of the same border. Most of South Yorkshire was thus part of Northumbria, although that Sheffield railway station, from which you can get trains to both York and Tamworth, two of the main settlements of the requisite kingdoms, stands directly over the River Sheaf and therefore the border between the two, feels quite apt. Its location on the edge meant it never seems to have developed much beyond a few homesteads, but conversely it does mean it escaped the wrath of the incoming Normans and the harrying of the north at the end of the 11th century, where much of what was Northumbria was laying waste. One place that was occupied, though, was Conisborough, between Rotherham and Sheffield. I talk about this more in my earlier podcast episode 30, which was on the Wars of the Roses. The church here dates from the 700s and may well be one of the oldest buildings extant in the county, while its castle has been owned by no less than royalty since as far back as King... Ooh, I seem to have something in my eye. Harold. Although quite small now compared to places around, Conisborough Castle does stand atop a large hill next to the River Don, so it would have been quite a strategic vantage point. There was, at one point, a castle in Sheffield, and it was built not long after the Norman Conquest. But it was never really that notable, as compared with other castles nearby like Conisborough and Sandal. In fact, the castle grounds were far larger than the castle itself, stretching out so far southeast that a manor house was later built in the park. This, by the way, is why my local parkrun is called Sheffield Castle Parkrun, despite being some distance from where Sheffield Castle stood. It's held at Manorfields Park, which was once part of the castle grounds near where the manor stood. There's only a few stones there now, which admittedly is more than there is of Sheffield Castle. Sheffield Castle's main claim to fame was being where Mary Queen of Scots was held for a period of time in the late 1500s, while Queen Elizabeth I pondered what to do with her. The castle was completely destroyed during the English Civil War and eventually replaced by a market hall, which has also since been demolished. To be fair, it was fairly dated and ugly. And it has been replaced with, well, at the time of recording, nothing. It's a building site hidden behind temporary fencing covered with street art. Another oddity of this early medieval period was suggested at the time of the Scottish independence referendum, and that was that Doncaster was part of Scotland. This seems to have been due to the Treaty of Durham in 1136 between King David I of Scotland and King Stephen of England, where the latter ceded the town to Scotland, King Stephen having problems of his own and didn't want to engage further in a costly war with the Scots. The belief is that the town was never formally retaken, but to be honest this was a period of pretty constant warfare and vague alliances and borders changed regularly. King Malcolm of Scotland swore allegiance to King Henry II of England in the late 1150s, and the English king assumed de facto control of the city and everyone accepted this. Who needs a legal framework? Unless you're listening in 2027 and you're desperate for a Scottish passport, I guess. Anyway, what we now know as the main towns were given market charters in the late 1200s, but it wasn't really until the rise of industry in the later Middle Ages that the region really took off, and population estimates suggest that it's not until the mid-1700s that any settlement in the area hits any significant national size. 
Even in the 1600s, the likes of Bury St Edmunds and Great Yarmouth were larger than anything in Yorkshire outside York itself, and possibly Hull. Rather, the area was, similar to in Roman times, a place you passed through rather than stayed any time in. And this is, of course, where tales of banditry and outlaws and people like Robin Hood come in. Robin Hood? But isn't he associated with Sherwood Forest and the Sheriff of Nottingham? Well, yes. But of course he's a mythical figure that a combination of a number of different tales, some of which may be based on multiple real people, were taken and exaggerated. There's a couple of competing theories over this, but it must be remembered Sherwood Forest isn't itself terribly far from Sheffield and Rotherham. Worksop, the northern edge, is less than 10 kilometres from the county boundary, and plus Robin Hood himself is often referred to as Robin of Loxley. Loxley is a real place, it's a northwestern suburb of Sheffield, heading out towards the peaks, and on the wrong side of the River Sheaf, it must be said. In addition, it's believed that the area he normally patrolled was actually Barnsdale Forest, which lay just north of Doncaster and directly on the road between there and York, so would have been prime territory for banditry, rather than the more famous places in Sherwood Forest, which are kind of nowhere, really. The Great North Road never went through Edwinstow or Mansfield. Note, too, that Little John, one of his known associates, is reputedly buried in Hathersedge in the Hope Valley, just to the west of Sheffield. Loxley is also the name of one of the rivers on which the city of Sheffield stands. In fact, the city is noted for standing on five rivers, the Don, the Sheaf, the Loxley, the Rivelin, and, despite its unassuming name, the Porter Brook, which is much larger than it sounds. And, like many of the world's major cities, seven hills. As an aside, the third steepest residential street in England is in Sheffield, Blake Street, in the west of the city between Upperthorpe and Walkley, and it has an incline of about 30%. The combination of this became important in the Middle Ages and directly led to the rise of the region as a centre for industry. The hills were rich in metals like iron ore, and the rivers flowing through them provided an easy and cheap source of hydro-energy to power things like mills and industrial grinding machines. This predates the so-called Industrial Revolution. The notable Shepherd's Wheel, named after a much later owner, that stood on the Porter Brook was known to exist in the mid-to-late 1500s. It's now a working museum and scheduled ancient monument. The main industry at first was metalwork. Sheffield became noted for its steel, and indeed is still known as Steel City to this day. Its ice hockey team are the Sheffield Steelers, a fact mentioned as early as Geoffrey Chaucer in his Canterbury Tales in the late 1300s. And by the 1600s, it was one of the leading sites in England for, amongst other things, cutlery. And even in my lifetime, I can still remember tableware embossed with Sheffield steel on it. Sheffield was also the site of the first successful European attempt at recreating crucible steel, a form of ironworking that made a purer and stronger form of steel that was common in India and Central Asia. Within a hundred years of Benjamin Huntsman's first attempts, Sheffield was believed to be the origin of up to half of the entire steel output of Europe, providing the backbone to the expanding British Empire and causing the region, and Sheffield in particular, to grow exponentially. Coming from nowhere, Sheffield became the 11th biggest town in England in the 1801 census and was the 6th by 1861. This, of course, is commemorated in the fact that the central theatre in Sheffield is called the Crucible. It does not look like one, after all. There was one issue related to this sudden increase in Sheffield's industry and population, involving water. Remember when I said this was an area of seven hills and five rivers? The growing populations needed fresh water supplies, and this was achieved by building several reservoirs in the nearby Peak District, just to the west of the Sheffield urban sprawl. One such is the Dale Dyke Reservoir, near Bradfield. It's 23 hectares in area, about 18 Olympic swimming pools apparently, holding 2,000 million litres of water. At least, it does now. When it was originally built in 1864, it held half as much again. That's quite a lot of water. And indeed, it was too much water for the dam that held the reservoir in place. A day after being filled, the dam broke. It hadn't been constructed to exacting standards, and 3,000 million litres of water rushed out, down the River Loxley and into the River Don, the resulting flood surge reached upwards of 12 feet, killing over 240 people and destroying over 5,000 buildings. It's one of the most devastating floods in British history and may even be the largest non-weather-related flood disaster experienced in the UK. Weather-related flooding has affected the region since, in 1991, 2009 and 2019, but notably, of course, in 2007, when parts of Sheffield were inundated with just under two metres of water, especially the Hillsborough area, which was also the area most hit by the 1864 flood. 
One of my internet friends at the time was flooded out of her house and, as far as I know, never went back. She ended up moving to Leeds, via Australia. Anyway, the other towns in the South Yorkshire region also expanded because of developing industry. Barnsley became a major centre for glass and linen, for instance, and Rotherham developed an iron industry. Remember that Roman temple? It was moved because of a huge ironworks built on the site just after World War I. But it was coal that was the king for most of the region, especially around the Dern Valley between Barnsley and Rotherham. At nationalisation of British coal just after World War II, the total number of extant collieries in South Yorkshire stood around 70. It's likely that the total number of mines dug, including ones closed early due to unprofitability, ran into the hundreds. It's no coincidence that in more recent times, when the National Union of Mine Workers moved their headquarters out of London, that they went first to Sheffield and then to Barnsley. Unions in general became an important factor in specifically Sheffield's growth. Working conditions in the steel industry were notoriously grim, and employers tended to cut as many corners as they could. Eh, it was ever thus. In response, militant agitation amongst employers grew over the mid-1800s. Sheffield saw the organisation of some of the first recorded trade unions, and certainly the first known attempts at cross-industry trade union congress-type bodies. The Sheffield Mechanical Trades Association was founded in the early 1820s, for instance. A pay dispute and subsequent failed strike action in the 1860s led to the Sheffield trades union movement reaching out to the rest of Britain, and in 1866, in Sheffield, the country's first national trades union was founded, the United Kingdom Alliance of Organised Trades. Although it didn't last very long, due mostly to its leadership being implicated in a series of violent actions and murders known as the Sheffield Outrages, that it existed at all paved the way for the Trade Union Congress, the TUC, as we know it today. Note, by the way, that trade union activity itself wasn't fully legalised until 1872. Trade union activity in the region was also pivotal a hundred years later, during the miners' strike, a year-long strike across the UK that pitted miners against politicians, Yorkshire against Nottinghamshire, Football matches between Mansfield and Doncaster had to be heavily policed for years afterwards, and may be symbolic as to why many perceive a north-south divide in the country. The strike itself is beyond the scope of this podcast, and may well end up being a completely separate podcast on its own. But it's worth noting that it began in South Yorkshire, when the colliery at Cortonwood at the Barnsley end of the Dern Valley was earmarked for closure for being uneconomic. It's now a retail park. In addition, the most famous battle of the strike took place at Orgreave, in the east of Sheffield, if you ever see footage of police and miners and picketers fighting on TV or in a film, it's likely the footage came from here. It's now a business park, with plans to develop it into a country park. This history of a unionised and active workforce is partly the background as to why the moniker the People's Republic of South Yorkshire has been given to the region. It's always been an area of very socialist left-wing thought, and it was in the 1980s when these views came strongly to the fore. Some were practical. Heavily subsidised local transport, for instance, which partly caused ructions with central government, the Conservatives under Margaret Thatcher, who wanted to restrict local council spending. Also, Sheffield in particular was fond of communist-style housing and tower blocks, one of which, Park Hill, just up the hill from the railway station, became notorious for its construction and reputation. It was later designated a listed building as a prime example of brutalist architecture, and is now seen as quite bijou. It looks like something directly imported from Belgrade or Novosibirsk, only with more Dayglo patches. The nickname was also given for symbolic reasons. Sheffield Council had a tendency to fly the red flag outside the town hall, and it signed a twinning agreement with the Soviet city of Donetsk. One of the roads in the southeast of the city, now served by a tramline, is called Donetsk Way. It also famously declared itself a nuclear-free zone. This led directly to the thought-provoking and incredibly bleak film Threads concerning the realities of the aftermath of a nuclear war being set in Sheffield. This theme of the end of the world as we know it came up several years later when the equally apocalyptic TV drama The Last Train was set here. Evidently, Sheffield's the place to be if you want to experience Armageddon. On a lighter note, kind of, arguably the most famous film to be set here was The Full Monty, although even that was set with a backdrop of post-industrial dereliction. So, that's a brief <laughs> history, but what's it like to live here? Local author Judith Watkins, who was born and brought up in Sheffield, gives us a brief overview. I was born and bred in Sheffield, and even though I worked abroad and travelled the world, I still ended up back here. I think that's because I'm from the steel city, and its magnetism is a force to be reckoned with. Once the place has touched you, it's hard to pull away. 
Just ask the multitudes of ex-students who came here to university and never left. Could it be its architecture that draws the crowds? I mean, the oil road, town hall egg box and Tinsley Towers were all icons of their time but they've long since been replaced by other Marmite structures like the Cheese Grater Car Park or the steel drums of the Hubs building. Or might it be because of its reputation as the greenest city in Europe with its much-loved trees, which modern-day Sheffielders have even risked prison to protect? You see, with the Peak District National Park right on the doorstep, there's never far to travel to find the peace and quiet of nature. In my outdoor city, you can not only walk, but run, cycle and climb. Maybe you'll soon even be able to ski again if they ever rebuild the slopes that burnt down. But if that's too energetic, then just sit back and watch the footy. A choice of two teams. Just be careful which you pick. And remember, you're in the birthplace of the world's most popular sport, with Sheffield FC being the oldest football club in the world and Sandygate, its oldest football ground. But a more likely explanation for Sheffield's appeal is its reputation for being a safe place to live, and its nickname as the largest village in England. For, despite its population of over half a million, you'll always bump into someone you know in the city centre. And take care, because that stranger you meet in a pub will be the second cousin of your best friend's sister's hairdresser, so watch what you say. But whatever you do say, you'll be sure to get an answer, because Sheffield folk will always engage you in a conversation. In fact, it wasn't until I left my hometown that I realised saying hello as you walk down the street, or commenting on the weather in the bus queue, wasn't the norm for all cities. It's the friendliness of the place that's so infectious. And once it's got under your skin, then Sheffield will be carved in your heart forever. The Trees Ah, yes. It's another example of that radicalist bent the people of the city seem to have in spades. As part of a street regeneration campaign, the local council wanted to remove several thousand trees from the streets of Sheffield that were blocking the way or damaging the pavements and replace them with saplings. The locals, especially in the west of the city, Netheredge and Sharrow, areas with a vibrant and quite studenty population, objected to this and tried to prevent the culling of healthy trees, often by handcuffing themselves to it. One of my friends, in fact an ex, but obviously we still talk to each other, was one of the leading campaigners who got arrested. As for football, not only does Sheffield have the world's two oldest extant football clubs in Sheffield FC and Hallam FC, who play each other in the Sheffield Derby, the other clubs play the Steel City Derby, but the Browell Lane football ground hosted the first ever floodlit football match, and it's also one of the few sporting grounds to have hosted both international football and international cricket, albeit only one international cricket match in 1902, when play was affected by industrial haze. It's also from Bramall Lane that the introduction to this podcast was taken. It's a recording of the crowd of Sheffield United football fans singing the classic Greasy Chip Butty song, which is one of the most famous songs associated with Sheffield. Someone else who was brought up here and came back later in life is Annie Matthews, who goes by No Hurry, Be Happy on Instagram. She also talks about the trees, but also what she finds pleasurable about the city in general. Sheffield's my hometown. I was born and brought up here. As a working adult, I moved away and I lived in London for a number of years and Cheshire. But in my 50s, I've returned to Sheffield. The thing I love about it most is you kind of have the best of both worlds. You've got this city and urban lifestyle. There's theatres and art galleries, events happening. And then at the same time, you're surrounded by beautiful countryside. I read quite often that Sheffield has the highest ratio of trees to people across Europe. It's also got around 250 parks or green areas. This year, it's honestly been an absolute blessing to have loads of places to go walking. There are events happening outside, gosh, all year round, really, especially music in the park in the summer. That's a great fun thing to do. Probably the best example or the the most well-known example of that is the Tram Lines Festival. The World Snooker Championship has been held in Sheffield for years. I've lost count really of how many years. But when that's happening, the city centre is just full of atmosphere and there's fans from all around the world that turn up to watch it. 
It really is a fun thing to do to head into the city centre when that's happening. The biggest downside of Sheffield? Well, for me, I would say it's not being near the coast. But it is only an hour to two hours journey, really. So I guess I can't complain too much. Culture. I've not really spoken about culture. From my demographics point of view, Rotherham's most famous children are the Chuckle Brothers. To me, to you. While ex-Top Gear presenter James May went to high school here. Weirdly, his co-presenter, the divisive Jeremy Take That Clarkson, was born in Doncaster. Barnsley Council converted part of its town hall into a hyper-local museum called Experience Barnsley. This gives an introduction to the region and has a considerable number of interactive exhibits and information specifically local to the Barnsley area, including short films depicting stereotypical Barnsley residents across the centuries. At the time of my visit there, there was even a temporary exhibit on the town's most famous son, the cricket umpire Dickie Bird. It's still so telling that on my visit, the vast majority of other visitors there, if not Barnsley resident themselves, at least had a very strong connection to the area. Essentially, the museum was telling people about their own history, an important and often overlooked aspect of community. Barnsley Town Hall itself is a classical style building, listed, built in the early 1930s. It could so easily have been Art Deco and may look even better if it was. There's a war memorial outside it and there was a weird sculpture thing which the council occasionally issues warning to people not to climb. It was on loan from the Yorkshire Sculpture Park just across the old West Yorkshire border in Wakefield and I don't know if it's gone back yet. It's called Crossing Vertical by the sculptor from Bristol, Nigel Hall, and it's made of steel, but presumably not Sheffield steel, alas, weighs just under six tonnes, is ten metres tall, and its design of a central backbone lined with slats has given it the nickname of the Nitcomb. Sheffield, apart from its movie heritage mentioned earlier, has also been a hotbed for music. In my youth it produced bands like The Human League and ABC, and also Heaven 17, one of whose songs was, in keeping with the city's vibe, banned from airplay by the BBC for being too politically radical. It's also home to the two cockers, Joe and Jarvis, unrelated, though it seems that Joe may have babysat Jarvis when the latter was a wee kid. When I was a student, my housemate at the time claimed I looked like Jarvis Cocker. Very similar height, same kind of head shape, similar glasses. I've never seen it myself. My mother thinks I look more like a younger Louis Theroux. I suspect that's just wishful thinking on her part. These days, the biggest musicians from Sheffield are probably the Arctic Monkeys. Oh well. The city is full of small bits of history too, if you know where to look. For example, in the suburb of Hillsborough to the northwest, the main shopping centre is built into and named after Hillsborough Barracks. They were built in the mid-1850s and housed a number of regiments, including one battalion of the Dragoon Guards and another of the Royal Artillery. At its height, just over a thousand soldiers were stationed here. While it's hard to believe they were in situ in preparation for a revolt of Yorkshiremen, it must have been a quite nice posting. Despite the plethora of industrial towns around, like Deepcar and Stocksbridge and Elsica, the location on the edge of the Peak District and next to the River Loxley must have been more appealing than other garrison towns in the south. The site was quite expansive, incorporating, amongst other things, a stable block, married quarters, a school catering for 80 children, a granary, hospital provision, including both dental and veterinary practices, not in the same building though, and the facility to store field guns. And by all accounts, it was quite an imposing site. The army pulled out in the 30s and the site was turned into commercial premises. Apparently at first a chemist took over before Morrison's supermarket took over most of it in the early 1990s. Other parts have become a car park, other shops and a pub, while the married quarters and the garrison's commander's house have been demolished and built upon. Then there's the quirky named suburb of Halfway. This lies on the very southern edge of Sheffield, again heading towards Cresswell Crags. It's the terminus of one of the tram lines, which means I never fail to be amused by the sight and sound of trams going halfway. The name derives from an old coaching inn on a main road, but there's been some debate as to which one. The most likely appears to have been one between the older and at the time more significant towns of Chesterfield in Derbyshire and Rotherham, probably specifically Templeborough. Indeed, in a straight line, it's almost exactly 12 kilometres from both. Just to the west of the city centre is Eccleshaw Road, heading towards Nether Edge. We have hidden treasures like, like the synagogue, which is just tucked away off Eccleshall Road. And it, that's a very grand building. You don't know that's there, but when you do know it's there, it's like, what? Well, look at that. Also just off Eccleshall Road in Sharrow is Sheffield General Cemetery. You wouldn't know it was there unless you peeked down one of the side roads to explore. 
Opened in 1836, it saw nearly 90,000 burials until its closure in 1978. This isn't just an ordinary graveyard with uniformly lined stones, though. This is a landscaped parkland and woodland in almost the very centre of the city that just happens to have graves and mausoleums in it, as well as a handful of older chapels that are now listed buildings. Amongst the people buried here are William Dronfield, founder of that first trade union congress, the United Kingdom Alliance of Organised Trades, many of the victims of the Dale Flood, and a chap called George Bassett, who you may not have heard of, but you will almost certainly have heard of the company he founded that was named after him, which later invented licorice all sorts, one of the most disgusting sweets in the universe. Don't at me. The voice you heard in the previous paragraph was one half of a couple who are friends of mine from Sheffield. B, you'll have heard before, she contributed to episode 34 on British Seaside Resorts, but for this pod she was joined by her husband, Green, and they had a great chat with each other about their experiences. The full version, all 24 minutes of it, will be available for my Discord followers, but I've taken a few extracts to use in this pod. Unlike Annie and Judith, who you heard from earlier, both B and Green grew up elsewhere and came to Sheffield as young adults. Well, I came to Sheffield when I was 22. I was at college, oh yeah, College Street University, back in my hometown of Cheltenham, and I was just slowly kind of dropping out of that. <laughs> And then I decided that I would defer for a year to do a year-long course that happened to run in Sheffield as well as in Cheltenham. And I decided I would come up to Sheffield for a year. Um, But then I got here and I just, it felt like home very, very quickly. And I met my first husband. And then I guess I, I, it just felt right to stay here. And I just stayed. So so what's your earliest memory of Sheffield? Well, I remember when I shared with my grandparents that I was going to move to Sheffield and Poppy said well why do you want to do that it would be all black and industrial and so I remember coming to Sheffield and thinking it's not black and industrial it's lovely like I the the industrial aspect of Sheffield didn't really come into my awareness uh I think you know for quite a while like because Mm. I I moved into Crooks to begin with and and have stayed on this side of the city I think if, if anything my most industrial knowledge of Sheffield for quite a long time was still back in the Four Monty. Mm. You know, like that was, that was really my first introduction to Sheffield, although I didn't, I only kind of really made that connection when I moved to Sheffield and I was like, oh gosh, the Four Monty. And I've really loved, um, as I've lived here, realising like, oh, that's where they filmed that bit. That's where they filmed that bit. Because the Ruskin Park just down the road in Blake Street, Mm. that's in the Four Monty. And Mm. so... Um, yeah, so I think I, community has felt like a, a really huge part of my experience of Sheffield from when I got here. And although the community I'm, I feel like I'm part of now is very different to the one that I was part of when I came, Sheffield, to me, as a city, feels like a city made up of communities. It doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like a huge city. Mm. at all and I, I love that about it because the fact that it's a huge city means you're not constantly bumping into people and yet at the same time I really feel like <laughs> I belong. And Bee there talks about community and togetherness and though she came as an adult she has the same sense that Judith earlier had the feeling that Sheffield could be described as England's largest village. I too am an interloper, an outsider. I was brought up the other side of the country in Liverpool and I don't think I even set foot in Sheffield till I turned 30. It was I'd never had a need to go there, plus it was kind of in the wrong part of the country to even pass through. It also wasn't a place I knew a great deal about. There's a few places like that in the UK, towns and cities that didn't impress themselves on me at a young age, so I never really associated anything with them. I put Leicester, Bristol and Southampton in the same category, big places that existed but with nothing to focus on, no real reputation for me to consider. That's not to say I'd have considered them boring, more I just had nothing to say about them. So much so, indeed, that when I was choosing universities to apply to, it never even crossed my mind to look into Sheffield. It kind of changed for me when I moved to Nottinghamshire. Not only was Sheffield now only 25 miles away, its railway station being an hour from my house, including waiting time for the train at Alfreton, but the job I had involved servicing several telesales call centres across the country, one of which was in the Dern Valley. When the mining and heavy industry closed, there was a huge amount of derelict land and nothing to replace it. Indeed, one part, near Manvers, was regarded for a time as the largest derelict site in Western Europe. 
Some of these sites have been replaced with country parks and areas of beauty, such as the Rother Valley at the extreme southern end of South Yorkshire, near Cresswell and Sherwood, and the Old Moor RSPB site, the wetland site at Manvers, which covers 89 hectares, which is 89 international rugby pitches, or an area about the size enclosed by the medieval walls of the city of Delft in Netherlands, or twice the size of the Vatican City. Much of it, though, became home to identikit and soulless call centres, arguably the new working classes, where people spend eight hours a day either trying to sell mundane services or handling calls from dissatisfied customers who are unhappy with the mundane services they'd previously been sold. They're staffed by the advisors who will happily switch allegiance to any of the other nearby companies based purely on salary and bonuses. The job's pretty much the same, only the greeting differs. Anyway, I went to the Dern Valley quite a bit. The railway from Rotherham to Swinton, passing through the old industrial sites, some still in use, some in ruins, the embankments and hillsides covered with young silver birch trees, always felt to me like it told the story of the region in a handful of minutes. However, it's not all grim. Remember I mentioned the ironworks in Rotherham, built on the site of a Roman fort? It's now home to the Magna Science Adventure Centre, a large interactive educational museum that aims to display and educate about not only the industrial heritage of the region, but also the science behind that industry. It's a fully interactive and child-friendly site divided into four segments relating to the four traditional elements of earth, air, fire and water. Each segment has different exhibits relating to science, showing, for example, how forges work, how tornadoes form, and the applications of the power of water. It's a great site for budding engineers and scientists. Its centrepiece is The Big Melt, a live demonstration of an authentic huge electric arc furnace that had previously been used for real in one of the steel-making factories that Sheffield was world-renowned for. At the other end of the Dern Valley, there's another industrial museum, the Elsica Heritage Centre, where one can find a heritage railway, craft shops, and a working original Newcomen beam engine, the sort of thing that your history teachers at school would rave about for ages. Indeed, this was the very engine that pumped water out of the nearby colliery for the whole of the 19th century. These both show the region is both accepting and proud of its industrial past, and wants to keep the history alive even if the industries themselves have long since gone. As for Sheffield itself, I think the first time I set foot in the city was when I went to Darnall and won a bottle of wine for making the most amusing noises when being tickled. But that's a tale for another podcast. Probably. I do recall having a period where every time I went to the city, I encountered something different. One time I was walking down one of the main shopping streets and randomly encountered a group of Bollywood dancers in the rain. They seemed to be enjoying themselves, though. Another time I was standing in the square outside the Crucible Theatre and random people ran past and tried to hide behind me. Some kind of interactive D&D hide-and-seek game, it turned out. Then there's the random table tennis tables, both in the square in front of the station and outside the crucible. It always seemed that something quirky was happening every time I came. But being so relatively close meant I was able to explore it more often. You'd have thought I'd have explored Nottingham more, but while I could get back from there later in the evening, and it was cheaper to get to, in terms of door-to-door it was more or less the same time, and, I don't know, I guess Sheffield just pulled me more. I've always been a northerner, despite my 12 years in the West Midlands. Liverpool is a city which I must say has a similar feel. It's equally as radical and cultural, and I can certainly see parallels. So maybe I just felt this was more like home to me. I, of course, was attracted by the beer. Several good breweries in the region, and lots of very good pubs, including one at the railway station itself that's been converted from the Edwardian waiting room and that serves as a huge brew pub. But being near the countryside also helps. Nottinghamshire is quite green, but it's the green of farmland, of muddy trails through overgrown grasslands, of never being that far from a country lane. Sheffield reaches as far as Stanage Edge, a cliff edge walk on the moorlands some 450 metres up that's very popular with rock climbers and people doing bouldering. It's much more wild and remote country, and close to the even more open countryside of Kinder Scout and the Peaks, which I talked more about on my recent podcast, episode 33. On the very, very edge of the city is the Strines Inn, a centuries-old public house and B&B which is reputed to be haunted. It stands on a long country lane close to the Dale Dyke and Strines Reservoirs and is pretty much the only building for maybe two kilometres around. And it's in Sheffield. Both Sheffield and Barnsley stand on the Trans-Pennine Trail, mostly a series of dead railway lines that stretch from Liverpool to Hull that have been converted into footpaths and cycle trails, so the whole region is great for hiking. It's also a good place for running, especially barefoot running. I've mentioned before both how the pavements are smooth and comfortable to step on, and that there's actually several of us barefoot runners in and around the city, one of whom does often head west through the Rivlin Valley and up into Stanage Edge. 
And of course, there's the Sheffield Castle parkrun that's entirely run on smooth tarmac paths. The only downside is all of the hills. All the hills. Still, good for my leg muscles, I guess. B, one of those barefoot runners, and Green, who also runs, but in proper running shoes, talk about Green's first memories of arriving in the city here, but also a bit about that countryside off towards Stanage Edge and the views that they offer. When I first come to Sheffield, I were about 18. I was a young whippersnapper. <laughs> I used to live at Answorth, and we used to go out on Friday nights and used to get bus into town. And first time I got bus into town, it was a 52. <laughs> I got, got on bus, and it were two pence. And I said, two pence to town. Two pence when you were 18? Ah, happened. <laughs> two pence to town, it were. And, and bus driver said to me, where are you going, love? And I'd never heard anyone say love before in my life. <laughs> A man saying love to me. I didn't know where to look. I mean, I was 18 then. I was young, so I didn't know anything else. And we got on bus, and we went to the Mucky Duck, and they wouldn't let me in. And I had to go back again on the bus to go home to get my passport. What did you think of Sheffield when you arrived as a student? It was quite grimy and industrial and still. And um, I remember being uh, on Fargate and the treating miners were always there. And I remember um, the battle for all grief. So you were 18 in, in 84? Yeah. 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 And it was quite a grim time for Sheffield then. But Sheffield was quite industrial then, still. When you came to Sheffield, yes. did you intend to stay here no. long term? No, no, I did not. Why did you end up staying long term? Um, because um, moving around a lot as a child, my family did not have a, a home in the UK. And I kept, they were all, all still living abroad. And I came to do my course in Sheffield. And... After my dad left the military, the whole family came to live in Sheffield. So we all live here now. Um, so I think I was the gravitational pull for the whole family coming to Sheffield. Right, so, um, so your family came here because yeah, you were here. Yeah. And so therefore you stuck around. I stuck around, yeah. And do, would you say you fell in love with Sheffield quickly? Yeah, yeah, I did. Because I remember, yeah, having this wonderful countryside on our doorstep. I remember we had a day, me... Glenn Blackman and Steve Flatman, we had a day trip. We got the bus to Castleton, the 272 bus to Castleton, and we got absolutely hammered. <laughs> and that bus journey on the way back, when you're absolutely hammered and you didn't go to the, for a wee before you got on the bus, is the longest bus journey in the world. But it's one of my earliest memories of being out, because I think we went at Mantor as well. One of my earliest memories of having such wonderful blessed countryside on our doorstep that is so accessible to mm. us and we call it our back garden and we call it our back garden yeah um, and we got married in it and we got married in it yeah on and, yeah and and the way that everything just gravitates into the center of the city i i, I actually love that you know because you can see the city if you stand on a hill you can see the city if you stand on another hill you see the city from another aspect if you go to a very flat city you don't get that sense of proportion and gravitation when you take somebody and you drive out to red Myers and you park up at red Myers and you've got a mile walk well just over a mile up to Stanish pole and then you walk that a little bit further and you just get to that edge mm. and that is one of the most spectacular things in the world because you've been in the city center and then you just get there and that just that whole vista just opens up. It was up. far more spectacular before they cut down all those trees. Someone whose views and vibe for Sheffield have changed over time is writer, editor and creative coach and advert star Letty Butler, who was very glad to have had a second chance to experience the city. So the first time I moved to Sheffield, I was seven and it was because my parents were getting divorced. Um, so me, my mum and my brother moved from London and I remember spending probably every night for two months after I was told this was going to happen that, uh, uh, yeah, praying that there were no houses for sale in Sheffield because I did not want to move here. Needless to say, that didn't quite work. And the reason that we, we decided to, well, mum decided to move us to Sheffield is she was actually doing a show at the, at the Crucible at the time 
called, I think it was called Born Yesterday. And she had a day off, a Sunday off, and she went out into the Peak District. And obviously things were not going well with the marriage. And um, she had taken herself off on a walk to Beely. And then she came across Chatsworth House and she sat down and she sketched the house and made the decision that this is where she wanted to bring us up. And she has that that sketch framed um, in the cottage where she she moved us into and, and still lives now. So I guess it was it was Chatsworth that sealed our fate. And then I left. I left Sheffield to go back to London to train at drama school and then be a, a jobbing jobbing working actress. And I stayed down there for another eleven years. And then I got lured back um, to do an MA at Hallam, and I was adamant that it was I was just going to be here for the eight months contact time and then I was straight back to London. Sheffield had nothing to offer me. And I got here and I was amazed at how much the city had changed, like how exciting and creative and vibrant it was. And I'd forgotten what it's like to have nice people everywhere and the beauty of the the landscape and being so close to the Peak District. And slowly but surely, I remembered why this is home and why home is really nowhere else. I think I'd spent my life feeling like a bit of a kind of half-breed. I didn't know if I was North or South or or London or Sheffield or, or what, but having f- flitted between the two, I, I'm very happy to confirm that, that I'm Sheffield through and through. Um, so I now live in the city centre and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I love Sheffield. It's such a great place. I'm sort of annoyed that people don't know about it, but I'm also secretly pleased, which is selfish, but, you know, there we are. And to end with, I'd like to offer a very personal recollection of Sheffield from local writer Stephen Meller. I was going to talk about Sheffield as a place for invention, innovation and radical thinking, but they announced last night that they're closing John Lewis in the city. Now, we don't know it as John Lewis. We never have. They rebranded it John Lewis a few years back and everybody stood outside and went, nah. We know it's Coles. Because John Coles opened up a department store in the city, God knows when. And for generations, Coles Corner was where you met, where you met your girlfriend. The lady you were trying to court back then, I suppose, is far more innocent than it is these days. But that was where you met and you held your flowers and you gave them and you went off walking to, to go into the pictures. And that's where so many of our families started. When I was at that age, when I was you know, a younger man about to start out in this big world, I had my first real kiss at Coles. By then it had moved to Barker's Pool. And it wasn't one of them mad, passionate French-style kisses and all over each other in the rug department, none of that. I really liked this girl and she really liked me because she must have done we were together for a while. And she always liked to go into Coles when we went into town. And one afternoon we bunked off school and we went into town. We had a wander around. Me trying to pluck up the courage. We went to Coles. We went all all around Coles, up and down, all different departments. Even departments had no idea what they bloody well were. And then finally, we were on the escalator. And she turned to me and she said, have you got something to ask me then? And I thought, well, it's now or never. So I asked her. And just as we were nearing the top of the escalator, I think to go on to the second floor down from the top where the cafe was, she said yes. She would go out with me. And we had our first kiss. I'll always remember that, and I'll always remember that escalator. And I'm sure I'm not alone. So whatever happens to John Lewis, I don't really care. But I do care what happens to Coles. So what have we learned in this episode? South Yorkshire has been inhabited since the Iron Age, but historically tended to be on the periphery of things until industrialisation brought people here. This industrialisation led to radical viewpoints and an overarching sense of community spirit. It's a region full of villages, both small and large, surrounded by beautiful scenery, some of which has replaced the heavy industry the area was noted for. It's a place that draws people, and once you're here, it's surprisingly hard to leave. And I guess where better to celebrate the end of the world than with a pint of Abbeydale beer and a pie covered in Henderson relish, sitting on Stanage Edge or Parkwood Springs, overlooking the city, watching civilization collapse from a nuclear or asteroid strike. Shame I really hate licorice. Well, that's about all for this pod. 
Join me in another two weeks for another venture beyond the brochure. I'm aiming to have another topic-based pod, though, as normal, I haven't decided what it's on yet. Before you go, though, there is one final contribution. Poet Christina Hogg, a long-time resident of the city, has written a few times about Sheffield and her feelings for the place. She's allowed me to use an extract of one of her poems, I'm Mapping Sheffield, on this pod. The full written version, along with another poem she read aloud, will also be available to my Discord followers. Until next time, then, have a really good time, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. I'm mapping Sheffield. I'm mapping Sheffield and what Sheffield means to me. How can you map the smells, the scents, the memories? How can you map how it all comes back to me? City Hall smells the same, like a 20s elegant cruise ship. A new one sailed in the 40-plus years since. I went in, Philharmonic. Crucible feels the same. Warm cocoon of room of soft voices in anticipation and you looking over front seat's edge and going and fetching another pint. Sound of skies. How can I map Sheffield? How can anybody? All he has a good old go, a crack at the emotional shape. You can't draw lines, get out rulers defined. Like I did a pastel only punctuated by telegraph wires in front of Moors. I map freedom from sash window. I'm mapping Sheffield in my heart, in my mind, and my idea of it. I take prioritorial ownership. We all have ghosts. I wonder why, what they did with the polar bear. That would be something to dispose of. I guess the bees have flown from the window. Western models, older, and Peter, the artist, is deceased. I see them, made these memories. We all go to the boating lake on fifth form trip. It's a Monday when all museums in Sheffield and Leeds is closed and everywhere. The epitome of disorganisation, biology department and electron microscope. A virtual tour of what you did if you were dead clever. Octagon, fifth form, disco, 1984. The last time I went there, socialist worker, socialist worker. I think there was a gig going on next door, Dolbusters, I fear. I walked the streets for ages, selling alarms, God knows where, endlessly trawling sales for four old days, rubbing shoulders with Sheffield smack had seen these days. 30 years later, as I go down the canal, they say, you're new, are you foreign? She has lines on her pretty round face. I know I've had a hard life already. Man, she's nearly early 30s, almost just still a teenage. If it were dead-end secretary job, going nowhere. You know when you're going nowhere, like the same two blokes in office, at least you can sign on at the same time, don't start till three. You're so lucky you're getting out. Qualifications, nine and three, Londonish Art College, in October 90, looming. We pay pull opposite ABC or Warwick Gorman, off, across from Holland Road, map these. I'm mapping Sheffield of distinct childhood and then teen, 70s and 80s, memories in specific locations, mapping how some of it's all gone, gaps. We're egg box, we're round cooling towers, high pots, shambles. You can go in Lynn's pantry and see a lot set of screen prints, lost but not forgotten. Old school on Surrey Street and remember them gone. Oh, have a lemon meringue, visuals, taste, commonplace, conversation. I'm mapping the smells and the same, the feeling, the entrance to the graves, library, gold lettering, but upstairs. Where's the jade? I wish I hadn't gone down Chapel Walk. It's like an old boyfriend has lost his hair and got a beer belly. Remember him at the height of his powers. Messing around in English, a hair slick like rare book tokens, choosing carefully. What were it? Aesop's fables, glossy pavements, and if you're lucky, milkshake pink before fast food was invented, you'll have to wait. My daughter is incredulous at this when you explain this. Always on a budget, it goes without saying. Map this Tuppence bus fare, map this time that's lost and gone and placed that's still there somewhere underneath. You get to my skin and sensibility. Born in Jessup's three weeks late, yeah, in a heat wave apparently. And yes, it has been complex once or twice mapping a Sheffield that is myself. And all I have left is Jarvis in big letters. One voice, 30 years. I mean, it's not much to go on, is it? Too much emphasis on one man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Sheffield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at RTWBarefoot, 
or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group, travel.tales.beyond.brochure, and I also have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. It's patreon.com slash travel-tales-beyond-brochure-pod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.